Uh, you good? All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Speed. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast, brought to you by PWP Video. I'm Michael Schweisheimer, the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. So those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. People who are on a mission to make the world a better place. We gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat. They compete for a $250 donation to their favorite nonprofit. The audience also selects a favorite story that receives a $100 donation. We videotape their stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. But this podcast is about the story behind those stories. What motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience? How did they choose the story they were going to tell? And what was the experience like? And we get to learn about the storytellers themselves. Mission Story Slam 3 is coming up fast on Tuesday, April 23rd. That's Earth Week, so we're going to have an environmental theme. Our MC, Chris Titulo, gave us the working theme of saving us from ourselves. Think you have a better idea? Email me at michael at pwpvideo.com. And reach out if your organization would like to sponsor the slam. The theme at the first Mission Story Slam was that moment. And our $100 donation winner that night was Mara Nisley, who's joining me today on the podcast. Instead of me telling you about Mara's work, I'll let her story do it. Flash forward <laughs> to when I'm an adult. I'm kind of stumbling through after college, not really sure what I wanted to do. I was a political science major. Ridiculous, because I'm way too honest to be in politics. <laughs> and I went out of school, I got a job in customer service, did that for a year, it was awful. And I just left and I said, you know what, I'm gonna find something. Like, I wanna work somewhere that works towards a goal, not a bottom line. And so I was stumbling around on Idealist, and I found ALS Hope Foundation. And the thing that struck me about the job posting was that it was three pages long. I'm looking at it like, what does HTML coding have to do with event planning and like talking to people at a clinic? It, it literally had everything that you could ever think to do. And the title was Communications and Events Manager. So, Mara Nisley, I'm so glad you could join us on the Mission Story Slam podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's great. And, you know, it's amazing. I was thinking about it. It's actually been nine months since that first Story Slam. Whoa. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's time, a lot of time. <laughs> time flies just a little too fast. Um, so, I know we just let you do your own job description, basically. Um, <laughs> but I'd also... You did such a great job of introducing us to you and the important characters in your story. And I'd like to begin our discussion by playing another clip from your story uh, where you introduce us to your grandfather and explain how ALS first touched your life. I want to tell you about a memorable moment from my childhood when I was seven years old. And I remember distinctly, it was a hot, sticky August night. And that point in the summer you guys all know, where when the sun goes down, it doesn't actually get any cooler. It just gets stickier, and you're just absorbed in sweat. I was seven years old, and I was standing at the edge of a swimming pool at the deep end, and I was feeling nervous. I looked over to my grandfather, who was standing next to me, and I said to him, I can't do this. 
Well, being a man of few words, he just looked at me and then dragged a white plastic lawn chair next to me and plopped down. He said, you have been practicing this all day. You are going to swim from the deep end of this pool to the shallow end, and I'm going to sit here and wait until you do it. Well, I was just as stubborn as he was, both of us being Irish. So I wrapped my little arms around myself, and I decided to wait. And in my little mind, I waited forever, although my Nana would tell me later that it was just a couple of hours. <laughs> Until finally, probably out of boredom or hunger, I just said, whatever, and I jumped into the deep end, and I swam to the other side. And you know, the funny part about it was, once I jumped, it was easy to swim to the other side. It was the jumping part that was hard. So I got out of the pool in my little red, white, and blue bathing suit, and I was all proud of myself, and my grandfather came over and he wrapped the towel around me, and he smiled, and we went inside and enjoyed our dinner. This was a year before my grandfather was diagnosed with ALS, known as Lou Gehrig's disease. He only lived for six months before the disease took away his ability to walk talk, and eventually breathe. At the end, he couldn't feed himself. He couldn't even cough without assistance. It was a brutally traumatizing part of our family's life, one which our family still feels the scars of today. So I really appreciate your sharing the story about those scars with us. And listening back to your story preparing for today, um, it's so visual, it's so <laughs> vivid. And I can absolutely picture you as a stubborn little girl and your grandfather and the two-hour standoff. And um, I don't know, it really teaches us so much about who, who he was and helps so quickly for us to understand the core of who you've become. So the description, by the way, of your grandfather's of that six months from his diagnosis with ALS is just, it's devastating. Um, but from a storytelling perspective, it's so, you've compressed it and helped us feel what that experience must have been like so intensely. I can't imagine that telling that story comes up too often in the work you're doing at ALS Hope Foundation, or is that something that you talk about? Well, I talk about my grandfather all the time in my work, um, especially when I go to clinic at the MDALS Center of Hope, and I'm talking to patients who are going through a very similar time, um, even, wor like, uh, even worse situations. Um, so it, it does help to kind of humanize it a bit. And a lot of people with ALS will feel isolated, like no one knows what they're going through. Or maybe even friends or family have started pulling away from them because they don't know what to do. So sometimes when I tell stories like that from my childhood or about my family, not always related to my grandfather, even just related to my life, it helps kind of connect at a different level than just you have ALS, this is why you're here. So I do talk about it a lot, but sometimes it can be difficult because it's not always something I want to bring up on a, on a daily basis because <laughs> it really is still fresh, even though it was 20 years ago. With, your, with the situation that you've been through, is you have an experience and an understanding that other people just don't have. So I guess mm -hmm. while I would think that maybe it's hard to, for someone who's receiving a diagnosis to hear a story like yours, at the same time, I 
is it something that you use to help them understand or to connect? Yeah, definitely. Because I think as soon as I start talking about it, I'll say, you know, my grandfather had this disease, they kind of, most people will kind of soften and go, okay, so you kind of know what's going on. Um, and obviously, I don't go into it. It would be horrible to go into extreme detail with someone who's just been diagnosed. But just letting them know that, look, I know this is going to be really hard for you. And I know you're going to go through a lot, but we're all here for you. And we're all going to know what's happening and, and help you every step of the way. Because the worst part for them is the unknown, not really knowing how their disease is going to progress or what's going to happen every day, except for the fact that they're they're not going to be getting better. They're, they're going to be getting progressively worse. So that part is, is definitely helpful in, in some respects. But you have to read the room, too. You have to know the person that you're talking to. It's unknown, but it's known. Yeah, exactly. And the part that's unknown is... Um, how quickly it's what's going to happen, how quickly it's going to happen, because we do have some people who are slow progressors. So they could have the disease for 10 or 15 years and stay at this same kind of level for quite a few years. Um, So that can happen. But um, for a lot of people, it might not be as rapid as six months, but it could be um, just a couple of years. So they, they kind of don't know what to expect when, you know, we can give them kind of a broad, like at this point you might need a feeding tube, at this point you might need to be vented, but we can't tell them exactly, you know, you'll have six months until this happens because there's just no way to tell. We don't understand the disease that well to be able to predict that. I had no idea that it could take as long as 10 or 15 years. Yeah, it definitely could. I thought when you were telling your story that six months was maybe a little bit faster than I knew would occur, but I wasn't shocked. But I am surprised to hear that that it can take as long as 10 to 15 years for someone to progress through ALS. It can. The typical time is three to five years. So uh, 10 to 15 would be quite quite extraordinary. That would be quite um, a small percentage of people. But one of the things is, too, we believe my grandfather had the disease three years before he died, but he wasn't diagnosed um, until six months before. And part of that is they'll often do some maybe unnecessary surgeries, and they don't realize that person has something else going on until they don't get better from the surgeries. And that can rapidly increase how your disease is progressing. So if we can get people in early and get their interventions in early, they can maintain their independence for longer. And it's been shown that multidisciplinary care like at our clinic does that. So, I mean, there's definitely, it can take up to a year to be diagnosed. And that's something we do as well as we do education for physicians or even organizations so that they can kind of see the signs and know maybe to send them to a neurologist or an ALS specialist. And that can make a really big difference in someone's longevity. One thing was really clear to me, you know, rewatching your story, and that, that you, you, uh, you weren't improvising. You definitely did some preparation. Well, first of all, why did you choose to tell such a painful story? That's a good question. So I've always been a storyteller. I've always been interested in writing. Um, and especially in this kind of work, it helps to be a storyteller because you're right, it's a very complex disease. There's a lot of different things going on. If you can kind of tighten it up and make it into a digestible form, it helps people really understand what you're doing. So I did think about telling something else or I had a few ideas go through my head. But this one was just such a poignant time in my life. And I think it just really encapsulated exactly how I felt at those two points, actually, when I was um, swimming in the pool. Mm -hmm. And then also when I was 
trying to figure out uh, if I wanted to take this job or what I wanted to do. And it was a difficult decision. I thought about it for a long time because, sure, I could just go to some company somewhere and work in a cubicle and just do my nine to five and then go home and sleep and come back. And yeah, that would be, I'd be fine with that. And obviously this is harder because there's nights, evenings, we just did a gala. That was a whole week of, it was like, um, it reminded me of high school when they put on plays and they always called it um, Hell Week where all the, you know, theater kids would just be doing that all week. Absolutely. It was like my own private Hell Week. (laughs) So it's definitely not the most the easiest job I could have taken or even the easiest story I could have told. But obviously it had the most impact and it was the most powerful. So it was difficult. And it was also pretty funny because I did not pay attention when you were explaining the event. And I thought you could use a piece of paper to help you, like bring it up with you. And so I had it all written out and fancy. And then (laughs) it was like, got to yards, couldn't do that. So I just, okay, here we go. We're just regrouping. So. Wow. Yeah. It was it was pretty funny, actually. Well, you, you definitely <laughs> practiced some, I think, right? Oh, yeah, I definitely practiced, but I really thought I was going to have a paper to look off of, so that was pretty funny. Well, I will tell you, I'm sorry that you had the paper crutch pulled out from under you, but... It, it worked out. It's fine. It worked out really well. <laughs> yeah. No, because um, you, you, you did a great job as a natural storyteller, like, engaging us, and I'm just... I have to say, like, if I didn't have that eye contact that you gave to the audience while you were telling, I'm not sure if it would have landed the way that it really did. Did you have to do any preparation for yourself in terms of being ready to open up what is, you know, clearly a a scar for you uh, in front of an audience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always been fairly comfortable with public speaking. Um, I was in debate club. So did a good job with that. And I, so that part was okay, but I did talk to my mom and I talked to my grandmother about it. And when I took the job, I also talked to them about it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking about Pup Up a lot. You know, I don't want to, I want to kind of keep his memory alive. But then I also feel like sometimes when someone has a terminal disease like this, they're often remembered from that disease they're remembered as the past the last couple of years of their life as that were the, the, the whole of their life. life yeah i mean he had many other years of being active and traveling and taking us places and that was the majority of his life so it's really hard i think for a lot of people who have uh, family members with als to have that as their last moments with them because it's it's so imprinted on their family So that was something I wanted to talk to them about, too, because I didn't want that to be his legacy. I wanted his legacy to be what he did as a grandfather in the short years that I had him and as a father and how he's still impacting our life and and that memory alive. So that's kind of why I went with that story. I could have just done the the whole thing about what it was like when he was sick and we would go um, to Nana's house every day after school and, you know, my mom was a single mom and had to go help, and it was, you know, that part. But that doesn't really encapsulate what people with ALS go through in their families and, and that kind of whole idea of this person is someone else before ALS. It's, that doesn't define them. Well, and I really, um, you know, I mean it. You really gave us a, a strong sense of your grandfather as a person mm-hmm. with that two hours of sitting in his plastic chair. I was wondering if uh, I was thinking about him. Like, did he have a book or a newspaper? Oh, no, he just sat there and stared and waited. He could, like, he was the most patient human being. He would not say a bad word about anyone. He would not um, 
interrupt you. He would listen to you carefully. He had this incredible, and I think it was because he was, part of it was because he was orphaned at a very young age. He experienced quite a bit of trauma as a child. His mother died of cancer when he was three, and his father actually, they had a house fire. Um, he lived in Wilkesboro, and uh, he fell asleep with a cigarette, and the kids actually had to be rescued by a neighbor and, and climbed out of the second story oh, into a tree. So it was a, there's a newspaper article actually about it. And so he had a really traumatic start to his life, kind of got bounced around, different relatives. And so I think that imprinted upon him the importance of every moment, the importance of family, the importance of working hard and working your way up. And so I think it just made him this really wise, patient person from a younger age than most. But no, he sat in that chair and just waited. <laughs> Like, and it was just so funny because him and my Nana were such very different people in that way because my Nana's very, still is very active and runs around and wants to do things all the time. And, and Pop Up could just literally sit, he would sit down in his man cave in front of the fire for like hours, you know, <laughs> with the cat. <laughs> like, he just, he really could do that. It was amazing. It sounds awesome. Yeah. Sounds, and, uh, yeah, you're really lucky to have gotten that, that uh, push into the deep end from him, too. Yeah, really lucky, because I think that helped. I had a lot of anxiety as a child as well, and it's something that's kind of followed me into adulthood somewhat. Um, but that kind of helped get that idea of how bad could it be? The worst thing that's going to happen is maybe you freeze up and you can't swim. Well, Pup-Up's right there. He's going to come in and get you. He's not going to let you drown. So that was kind of that start of, this this is okay. It's all going to work out. Well, you um, you sure did a good job of not being anxious or at least not showing it when you told your story. What we I'm curious what you were hoping to get out of participating in Mission Story Slam beyond you know winning. Well, for one, I wanted to see if I could do it because that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And I'm always trying to find opportunities to spread awareness about the disease and to advocate for the disease. And I also just love stories. And I think it's a great way to not only share what we do at ALS Hope Foundation, but just kind of share how these things in our lives interconnect and interwork together. You know, um, sometimes it feels like life's very chaotic and random, but then other times it feels like, there's very specific reasons things happen. I wouldn't have had such a strong relationship with my grandfather, actually, if my mom hadn't gotten divorced and moved home, moved closer to them. She lived in Lancaster before that. So then it's like that had to happen. Right. And then that relationship and then his illness. And so it's like all these things do interconnect. And so I just wanted to kind of share that and share that common shared human experience that we all have. I think this really... A lot of people can relate to that. I saw a lot of nodding heads in the audience. Oh, yeah. That was fun, too. I love watching people and reading their reactions. And I love, see, like, thinking what – trying to see what they're thinking because I can see the connections going on. And maybe they're thinking of a childhood memory that they had. Or maybe they're thinking of a loved one who is ill or is currently ill. And so that part's just really cool, just watching people, what's going through their minds. Did – um were there other parts of the experience that stick out to you? I'm just kind of curious if did it deliver what you were hoping for? Yeah, and then some. I was really impressed by because it, this was the first one, and at the beginning, 
there were not that many people. You can remind me. I think there was like five people maybe signed up to tell a story. It was only enough yeah. to make it through the first half. We had a good audience, but we had less people had who less wanted people. to get up on stage. Yeah. And what I thought was really neat was after a few people went, I don't even remember when I went. I totally blocked it out. But yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember I when like I went. Third or fourth in the first half. I think like I was that. definitely in the first half because yeah. I don't even think Karen was going to do it because she did it the second half. Because she decided to do it. Right. And a bunch of people did that. They were like, oh, this isn't so bad. I have a story to tell. And they just jumped up in that moment and told their story. And to me, that was really cool because you don't expect people to have that kind of courage in the moment. But they felt it inside of themselves so strongly that they had to get it out. Um, that and the, the brew tour of Yards was cool, too. So. Well, how can you argue with you beer? Yards. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's delicious. Yeah. That was a fantastic part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, creating that atmosphere where it could be not only exciting to tell a story and, you know, kind of jumping, you know, skydiving in that way, mm-hmm. but um, but having it be that safe space was something we were really trying to... And it definitely succeeded. I mean, it, I felt safe talking in that space. I felt like afterwards when people came up and talked to me and told me about how, oh, I really related to that or, oh, what you're doing is, is really impactful and that spoke to me, that was... Because, again, sometimes in this kind of field, you're in a small organization, you can feel kind of isolated and feel alone. And to know that there's other people that are passionate about helping, you know, not just nonprofits, but just helping people um, was really neat to see. It made it like a little mini community, which even nine months later, we're still talking about it and engaging with it. So it was that part was unexpected. Are there are there. um besides being invited to be on the podcast mm-hmm. and things like that, are there other uh, ongoing connections or engagements that resulted from the experience? Yeah, there were definitely some people that I got in touch with afterwards. Um, everyone's crazy busy, so it's, sure. you know, you try to, to connect as much as you can. But, um, yeah, I mean, the networking piece is definitely there. And knowing that for the future, I'd like to go to the one this year, um, I can kind of attempt that a little bit more just being prepared for that and kind of handing out like a business card and being like call me if you need help with this or or that or you want to share ideas Um, because I think that's really important for nonprofits and just organizations or just people to support each other and not have even if you're not in the same field you know even if you're not another ALS organization there's still ways that you can help each other we weren't trying to create like a hardcore networking event um, it kind of happened naturally, though, which is like the best way to do it in my mind. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> a big fan of like speed networking or oh, no. that kind of stuff. But yeah, the hope was that we could bring a bunch of people together who were sort of open to having that experience and find ways to support each other, even if it was just listening to your story mm-hmm. or nodding or mm-hmm. understanding or learning something about ourselves. So I'm really glad that 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 had come through. And then, yeah, if there's connections that people can make and relationships that can happen beyond that, that's gravy. <laughs> um, had you had you ever done a story slam before? No, never. I had never done a poetry slam, a story slam, a, a, except for maybe a karaoke one time. That's it. I've never done anything like that. Yeah, I'm a one-time karaoke yeah, guy as well. I like watching karaoke. I don't like doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that it's just not a... I kind of knew it, but, you know, enough alcohol, you try something once. Exactly. So do you think you'll ever do another Story Slam, whether or not it's Mission Story Slam? Yeah, I think I would, especially if the um, the message speaks to me and the theme speaks to me and I, I have something to tell. 
And that's something that I always like to with, um, especially with writing and telling stories, is that people are really interesting. They'll think that they don't have a story to tell or they think my life's really boring and I don't have any connections to that. When in reality, they have a lot of really interesting stories to tell and they just don't realize it. So getting people to pull that pull that out of them is is really exciting to me. I, me- I remember I went to a, um, my mom's a teacher, so we were big on our summer camps. We were reading and writing camps. Oh, cool. <laughs> so in Westchester. And um, the one that I went to, it was about memoirs. And he said, why do you think people don't really, there's not a lot of memoirs out there. And I said, well, people probably don't think, I'm like, I don't think my life's very interesting. And he's like, your life is interesting. You'll, you'll figure out how it's interesting. And that's what's exciting about writing a nonfiction piece like that is because you can pull all that together. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist or something. You can be an ordinary person. So I like that aspect of it. It, um, I think that summer camp paid off. You did, yeah. a, you did a great <laughs> job uh, cherry picking those moments uh, to share with us. Yeah, definitely. And actually, you know what? I think I'm going to use that as an excuse to jump to the conclusion of your story so we can share how you brought, brought those moments together. So uh, I was intrigued, but also terrified. <laughs> um, and honestly, the part that freaked me out the most about uh, applying for this job wasn't even all the things I would have to do. It was this thought of diving back into this world of ALS and into this heartbreak that was this disease. So I did go through the process. I went through the interviews. And finally, one day, I was sitting in the living room where my grandfather's hospital bed had been, where my grandmother still lives. And looking through my email, I stumbled upon one that I immediately freaked out over. <laughs> literally jumped up. I'm, I'm sorry, there was a cat next to me and he like flipped out and literally flew over the couch and I still feel bad about that. Um, and I, I ran over to my grandmother's room, so glad I didn't give her a heart attack because I burst in. And I was like, Nana, I got the job. She started crying, I started crying, and we both just embraced and had this moment of levity, knowing that at this point in my life, I was finally going to bring it full circle and give back to something that had started when I was just a child. And we could both feel my grandfather's energy in the home and in our memories of him, and that he was proud of this moment, and he knew that this is what I should be doing. What were the things when you were planning, what were the circles that you were seeing or that you were wanting to find and share with us? Hmm, That's interesting. Um, So I guess when I had started just writing it out, I didn't really have a clear vision of what I wanted it to look like. But I knew I wanted it to connect somehow with my start with ALS Hope Foundation because it was such a pivotal and unique part of my life. I've been there for two years now. And it's always been different, always changing. Um, And so I really wanted to show the uniqueness of that and the uniqueness of the people that I get to work with. And I guess connecting that back to my life, it was just a, it's a little tricky when you're trying to make it make sense. Um, And so I would actually just be writing it all out, just kind of like stream of consciousness. And then I would kind of read it out loud or, you know, just kind of clean it up a little bit, look for those parallels um, in the metaphor of jumping into a new job can be kind of terrifying that almost that the same thing as like that sinking feeling when you jump is like that sinking feeling you get on your first day in the job. 
And that kind of stuff just started emerging and revealing itself to me as I kept uh, reading and writing it. And I think that's kind of the process that I usually have, which is just get it all out there and then kind of hone it and clean it up a little bit. And it took a, I mean, it took a few hours to get this where I wanted it to be. But that's kind of the part that I like about it. I like that. Well, the work really paid off. It shows. So with being the, not just events, but also communications manager at ALS Hope Foundation, do you, do you use storytelling like this in that work? So maybe not story slam storytelling, but are there other ways that you see storytelling through your job? Oh, definitely. We use it all the time. Uh, a good example is our, our gala that we just had. We had this video made of our organization that kind of goes through how we came to be, what we do now. And when you have 20 years, it's our 20th anniversary, when you have 20 years of an organization, you have 20 years of stories and t hundreds of patients and their families and their loved ones. And obviously we respect their privacy, so we wouldn't go into detail about specific people. But we all the time will just try to weave certain things into what we do and, and the stories that are out there of people who are uh, being really open about their disease too. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that we continue to, to work on, especially in the social media piece, because I think a story will definitely speak more to someone than just, hey, this is a bad disease, everyone hates it, give us money. I think a story kind of gives that personal element um, and makes you feel really passionate about it. Well, and by the way, Congratulations to ALS Hope Foundation yeah, on 20 years. That's pretty great. That's and congratulations exciting. on surviving your gala. Yeah. That, that's yeah. a big deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, you touched on something that I've seen in the work that I've done over the years with nonprofits, mm -hmm. and that I really, it does feel like disease focused nonprofits have, have sort of a big challenge at the start, and that um, getting support from those who are affected by the disease or their loved ones, those mm -hmm. directly impacted, like there's, that's a logical, strong case for support from that sort of base. Mm -hmm. But getting people who aren't directly touched by that disease seems much, much harder. And I'm kind of curious how you, how you deal with that with your communications at ALS Hope Foundation. It's definitely tough because there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of disease out there that is plenty worthy of people's support. And of course, if you have a personal connection to cancer, you're going to be more likely to support a, a cancer organization. Right. But that doesn't mean that you still can't care about uh, something else that someone's going through. I mean, I think the ice bucket challenge in 2014 kind of showed that people maybe yeah. some people I'm sure just did it because everyone else was doing it. They didn't know what it was for. But I do think a lot of people took the time to understand what the disease was about and why they should care about it. So with with my work, I think it's important to kind of show not just, hey, this is what the disease is, this is why it's it's hard for families and this is what happens to them, but when you support a small local independent organization like this, you're supporting your own Philadelphia community. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about supporting these people who are ill, it's about giving back to your local community, giving back to a clinic that you come to our clinic and you don't have to pay for any of the services you receive. You just send your neurologist visit off to your insurance, and that's huge, and you never see that anywhere. So even just from that standpoint of supporting your community and supporting the people that live in and around your community, even if you don't know them personally, um, that's kind of what I like to, to try to show people. And sometimes we'll even just kind of have that 
openness of, hey, this is what our clinic look, looks like. Here, come visit our clinic. Yeah. Come talk to us. Come talk to someone who has ALS if they're willing to do that. And it just gives you that personal connection that you don't have to give a million dollars, but you could give some of your time. You could send in a, um, you know, a silent auction item or something like that. And that makes a difference, too. I, I would just want to make sure that it's clear that if someone does want to give a million dollars, I think that they I will should, accept that. They should do yes. so, yes. Please oh. uh, call me. <laughs> you know what? I Do me a favor. Help me understand, because you brought up the ice bucket challenge, which was mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, but that was not uh, something that directly benefited ALS Hope Foundation, right? That's a yeah. That's a separate organization that did that. Help me understand just briefly what... ALS Hope Foundation does as a Philadelphia-based independent organization? Sure. So we basically do three main things. The first thing is care. And so we have a clinic at Temple University Hospital, the MDA ALS Center of Hope. And in that clinic, you get to see, so say you're a patient going to clinic, you're going to have a three-hour visit once every three months, and you're going to see your neurologist. You're also going to see PT, OT, speech, um, respiratory, mental health counseling, um, our nurse, they're probably missing one. They're going to kill me. Um, so That's get, a lot. They, they, you see a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so Mara you get to, gets a free pass if yeah. she misses somebody because that's a lot. I'm going to get a phone call. So the other two things that we do is education, and that entails we have a program called Hope Educates where we could have um, high school students come in, see the clinic, see our research lab, and see what we're all about. Maybe they want to pursue a career in that kind of field, or maybe they just – want to know more about what we do and, and have that awareness piece and they can kind of keep, they're like our little ambassadors and kind of spread the word about it. And then we also are involved with international organizations for ALS. There's a big conference every December um, where we sponsor the Allied Professionals Forum, which helps kind of all these different professionals um, talk about the different aspects of the disease and what they've been working on. And that's kind of cool because it's like this global, you know, we have the local Philadelphia angle, but then we also have that global interaction with there's some really interesting things that people do all around the world that have to do with ALS. And and it's kind of this common denominator, but everyone has different ways of approaching it. So you can learn a lot from them. And then the other part is just as much as we can with seminars and, you know, sending our neurologists out to talk about it even educating other physicians so that they can make the diagnosis sooner or know what to look for or hopefully avoid some of these unnecessary surgeries. Well, I'm just really impressed that what you're able to do in the first place, because a lot of times, again, you know, I was talking about sort of some of the challenges with a nonprofit that is focused on a specific disease or ailment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times people will focus on just research and cure or, or just clinical assistance or just awareness, and you guys are managing to do, you know, and, and I have to say the education component, I didn't know about that, mm-hmm. and that's really interesting to think about engaging young people into understanding not just the disease, but also the, the potential career paths in terms of working on it, which is pretty phenomenal. Absolutely, and getting them to care about it, because when you come to our clinic, um, you, it, I don't, I don't care who you are, what your experience has been. You come to our clinic, it, it impacts you. And you're going to feel a lot of a strong desire to do something after your clinic visit. Um, so we also do research as well. We have a, a neurosciences lab at Temple. And we have mice. And we have, I'm not, it might be obvious that I'm not a science person. So we do all of that kind of stuff. We are. No, looking, I would notice the mice too. That would yeah. be, yeah. 
we're we're looking for a cure as well. But you're right. There's there's a certain sometimes emphasis on research, research, research. We have to find a cure, and absolutely I agree with that. But sometimes the care piece can get forgotten. There's at the end of the day, there's all of these people with ALS right now, now. and they need our help, and we they need us to make their lives easier for them. So we kind of look for. I call it looking for gaps. We look for gaps in, uh, even yesterday at clinic, we were um, talking about some other programming that we could possibly start because someone was uh, talking about how they wish they could just go to the jazz festival. Um, they love jazz and they, they can't get out as easily. Like, right. Well, maybe we could get a van and just like take people around and, you know, like what else can we do that can just make their lives a little bit easier? Not just easier, but enjoyable because it's not you don't have to live with ALS and you know quote suffer for the rest of your life you just have this new part of your life that you have to adjust to and still do the things that you want to do but maybe get some help in doing them now that you're here I'm curious do you feel like you are accomplishing your personal mission and making making that difference you wanted to make definitely and I think it can be easy when you're working with a disease where there's no known cause there's no known cure to say, well, it doesn't really matter what we do because we haven't found a cure yet. But I think every day, even just talking to our patients or talking to their families, paying attention to them and letting them know that there is a community of people who are out to support them and make sure that they're okay and acknowledge them, that part really gives me a lot of gratification. And I still get angry that this disease exists and it still affects all these people. And you do kind of have, I have in the back of my mind, that little bit of hope of, well, this person just got diagnosed, but this could be it. We could get something in place for them and they wouldn't have to go through it. So it's definitely hard when perhaps that person passes on. It's, It's like you would think you would just kind of start to, hate to say get used to it, but you think it would just kind of start to roll over you. But no, every single one, it's it's this pain. It's this stabbing in your heart. So I think it's not always easy to do this, but I do think my passion is trying to make a difference and trying to help people. And so I do think that I've achieved that goal, at least right now in my work. Before we wrap up, um, what action would you like our audience to take regarding ALS Hope Foundation or any other causes that are important to you? The action I'd like to see people to take is odds are, even though it's a rare disease, you know someone who has it or someone who knows someone who has it or some sort of vague connection to it. So see what you can do to help that person, to reach out to them, even if it's just, hey, I'm thinking about you or, hey, I I know maybe you had a tough day. Just want to let you know I'm here. I could get you some groceries. I could take your kid to a movie. Something like that can be so supportive for people with ALS. And can, and if you're able to financially consider donating, I mean, we're a small organization. We really rely on individual donors. That's super helpful. But I know it's not in everyone's means to be able to do that. So even those small things, just showing you care, just even taking a moment to go online and learn more about the disease itself can be so huge in supporting this really great great community of people. I mean, it really does affect the best people. And it's it's horrible, but it's so true. So just learn as much as you possibly can and, and be as supportive as you can for this community. I really like the idea that obviously donating is very important to keep yes. things going. But that idea that um, 
that small actions can make a big difference for Absolutely. the community. Absolutely. Just showing that you're thinking about them and care about them, that's huge. You would not believe how many people start to pull away from our pals because they don't know what to do and they don't want to offend. Just ask. Ask what you, what they need and what, what you want to say and they'll probably tell you. <laughs> so we'll put the link in the description on the podcast, but what is the URL for ALS Hope Foundation? Um, it's pretty easy. It's just alshf.org. Excellent. So Mara, I really appreciate your jumping into the deep end of the pool with us and being on the Mission Story Slam podcast. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. So you can see Mara's full story and find the link to the ALS Hope Foundation at missionstoryslam.org. And remember, Mission Story Slam 3 is coming up on Tuesday night, April 23rd. That's the day after Earth Day. So it's going to be an environmental theme, tentatively saving us from ourselves. If your organization would like to partner on that slam, please reach out to Dave Winston or myself. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's how you'll know when the next podcast drops, and you can get all the details for Mission Story Slam 3. I'd like to thank Alex Hildman. Today is our first time recording at Indy Hall, and we are now a founding member of the new podcasting junto. The Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston and brought to you by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. And now we're even adding podcasting with a mission to our menu. So keep an eye out for our next original podcast. We're actually collaborating with Mission Story Slam alum Grace Palladino and Tabitha Myers on the new Civics on Tap podcast. Season one is already in production. In the meantime, we'll keep bringing you the Mission Story Slam podcast. And I will remain Michael Schweisheimer. And I look forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you soon.